Good morning again. As you've probably gathered by now, it is the first Sunday in Advent. And following on from our series on the art of connection, we're going to be thinking this morning about the art of waiting. What do you think of when you hear the word Advent? Do you think of the four words of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love? Do you think of celebrating Jesus' birth and his coming again in glory? Or do your thoughts go more like this? Chocolate, Advent calendars. When I asked my daughters what they thought of, their first words were chocolate. And their next comment was, a long, boring wait until Christmas. <laughs> However, when I asked my husband, he was like, too much to do before Christmas. These pictures, stress, shopping, endless lists of things we need to do. Maybe you long to focus on the thoughts of the first slide, the joy, the peace, Jesus' birth and his coming again. But you're simply overwhelmed by the worldly concerns on this one. So I thought it'd be good to remind ourselves at the start what Advent is all about. Now, it's hard to sum Advent up in a sentence, but my best attempt is remembering the promises of God and waiting for the coming of Christ, both his birth 2,000 years ago and his return in glory. Because in Advent, past, present and future all merge into one. A bit like when we were looking at Revelation a few months back. And this morning, we're going to focus on waiting. How good are you at waiting? I'd like you to put your hand up if you really like waiting. Not a lot of hands. One, one hand. Um, now put your hand up if you don't like waiting. Keep your hand up if you really, really, really don't like waiting. Mm, interesting, most people have still got their hands up. So I think it's something we need to think about. If you were to walk into a room and see a lovely gift wrap present on a table with a little label on, with your name on it, saying it's for you, but the person who put you in that room has said, you're not allowed to open the present until some point in the future that they haven't told you when. How would that make you feel? Would you feel indignant, frustrated, maybe a tingle of excitement or anticipation, entirely irritated or completely intrigued, or perhaps a combination of the two? Irritation tinged with excitement. Eagerness mixed with frustration. How many of us would obey the command not to touch the present, not to open it? How many of us, like when you've got presents around the tree before Christmas, and children and grown-ups too, go up to them and like pick them up, feel them, see if they're soft, hard, heavy, light, maybe even just peek under the paper? How many of us might do that with this present in this room? Or again, a famous experiment about children and marshmallows. Children, a child's left in a room with a marshmallow in front of them and told, if they don't touch it, if they don't eat it, 
and wait for 10 minutes, they'll get another one. So they'll get two instead of one. And then the children are video to see what they do. Now, quite a lot just eat it straight away. Others do everything they can think of to distract themselves. They maybe sing a song, tell a story, cover up their eyes, turn their back on the sweet. What would you do? Now, if you don't like marshmallows, and I don't like marshmallows, I'd have chocolate, chocolate instead, whatever it is that you'd really want to, want to eat, what would you do? Would you resist and wait? What if you were feeling really hungry or hadn't had that particular treat in a long time? What would you do? We live in an age of instant gratification. We, like most children, have a tendency to want things now, not later, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. How often do we feel like the figure in this cartoon? Now, I realize you probably can't read the words, so I'll read them to you. It says, I want what I want to appear, the moment I want it, on the very spot on which I first wanted it. If we're honest, I'm sure there's all times when some of us feel like that. And the culture in which we live encourages this attitude, not to wait, but to have what we want now. So many adverts today have as an underlying message, why wait? Whether it's buying things on credit, or ever faster broadband and internet access. According to one article, people will visit a website less often if it's slower than a close competitor by more than 250 milliseconds. That's 0.25 of a second. Obviously far too long for any sane person to wait in our busy lives. We hate waiting. Whether it's queuing at an airport, a checkout, in a traffic jam, waiting at the doctors or dentists, being put on hold on the phone and listening to that awful music or recorded message. Or at the very least, we do our best to reduce it because it makes us feel stressed. It makes us feel frustrated. It makes us feel out of control. And it's even worse when you have no idea how long you're going to have to wait. I've been doing a lot of waiting for trains recently on my weekly journeys to Durham this term. Now, it's not so bad when the little screen that flashes up tells you how many minutes late the train's going to be, and it stays that way. But when it keeps adding more and more minutes on, and then it flashes up with the notice, your train has been cancelled. Now, that's a bit more frustrating. It was slightly ironic that it was while I was thinking about this sermon on waiting the other week that my train was cancelled, and I had to wait an hour for the next one. Or what about when we're queuing at the supermarket and we've done our very best to eye up all the queues and work out which one's going to be the quickest? Is it ever the quickest one? No, because there's always something that happens to someone in front of you. And then there's those occasions when we're not just waiting for something we know is going to be unpleasant or that we might be worried about, maybe waiting at the dentist or waiting for tests or exam results. But is waiting always bad? What about waiting in anticipation and excitement or joyful hope? Like this dog in the picture waiting for its owner to come home. When we're waiting for something we're really looking forward to, something we really want to do or someone we really want to see, do we then enjoy the waiting? Or do we still wish that time away to be doing what we want to? 
And yet sometimes our waiting can increase our sense of joy when a much longed-for thing happens, such as being successful in an interview for a job you really want, or the birth of a baby at the end of nine long months of pregnancy. What about waiting for the big things in our lives? How much of our lives do we spend or have we spent waiting for the right partner, the right job, the right house, retirement, or the big one probably for most of us a lot of the time, answers to those decisions we have to make about where to go, what to do next. We spend so much of our lives waiting for the next thing or trying to find out what that might be. Why do we have such a need to know and such a reluctance to simply wait? Waiting is part of life. We can't avoid it. Yet, as Henry Nouwen says, for many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. A desert between where they are and where they want to go. Waiting feels like wasted time. And who can afford to waste time these days? We have too much to do. Every second counts. Or does it? We clearly can't eliminate waiting from our lives altogether. So what can we do about it? How can we change our attitude towards waiting? What if we start to, start to see our journey through the waiting as being as important as our destination? How can we learn to live in a countercultural way in this area of our lives? And so take time this Advent to wait, to enjoy waiting and regain that sense of hope, peace, joy and love, to share in the excitement of that first Christmas and look forward to Jesus' coming again in glory. How can we change our attitude? Thought it'd be good to look at what the Bible says. Unfortunately for us, there's a lot of waiting in the Bible. To take just a few examples, there's many more. Joseph waited 13 years in a prison cell while not knowing what would become of him. Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise of a son. And problems occurred when he and Sarah got tired of waiting and tried to do things their own way. Moses waited 40 years in the desert before he met God at the burning bush, and then another 40 years journeying through the wilderness once he'd escaped from Egypt. And Jesus waited about 30 years before he began his public ministry. Not to mention the psalmist's repeated cries of how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. And the fact that throughout the Old Testament, from the fall described in Genesis and God's covenant with Abraham, God's people are waiting for a way back to God and for the coming of the promised Messiah. That's a lot of waiting. So if God is making you wait, then you're in good company. But I thought as it's Advent, it would be good to look at a few examples of some people in the New Testament at the beginning of the Christmas story. All the figures who appear on the first pages of Luke's Gospel are waiting for something. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who'd been waiting for years for children, now at last waiting the birth of a child, following the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. There's echoes in this clearly of the story of Abraham and Sarah too. But Zechariah has to wait in silence. Imagine how hard that was. If we've got to wait about something, we at least want to spend our time waiting, telling everyone else about what a hard time we're having waiting and grumbling about it. Zechariah couldn't even do that. And then there's Mary, waiting for the birth of Jesus, again following a visit by an angel. And in Mary's case, she's waiting for something she didn't even want. It wasn't part of her plan for her life. Something that put her in a very difficult position in the culture in which she lived because of the shame associated with pregnancy outside marriage. Yet despite this, despite the fact it was not her plan for her life, she responds to the angel's news with the words, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. May it be to me as you have said. How much courage must it have taken her to say that? And then there's Simeon and Anna, both elderly, but waiting in faith for many years. Anna's 84 years old. They're both trusting God's promise to them of the coming Messiah, as we heard in the reading earlier. So the whole opening scenes of the good news are filled with waiting people. But they're all waiting with a sense of promise, a sense of expectancy, not despair. What can we learn then from these key figures of the Christmas story? Waiting is a movement. They've each received a promise that is to work in them, like a seed that started to grow. And this is important because we can only really wait in hope and trust if we're waiting for something that's already begun, something we've got a promise of. Waiting is generally a movement from something to something more. Waiting is active. Most of us think of waiting as something very passive, a hopeless state determined by events outside our control. The bus is late. We can't do anything about it. So we have to wait. And how frustrating is it when someone comes up to us, when we're waiting for them and says, oh, all you need to do is wait. It's not what we want to hear. But there's none of this passivity in scripture. Those who are waiting are waiting actively. Anna's never left the temple, but has worshipped there day and night, fasting and praying. Simeon, as we heard, was moved by the Spirit to go to the temple courts. Elizabeth and Mary are each experiencing all the changes involved in the nine months of pregnancy. None of these people is waiting passively. And a waiting person has to be a patient person. Impatient people are always expecting the real thing to happen somewhere else, at some other point, some other place. The moment for them is empty. But patient people, truly patient people, dare to stay where they are. Patient living means to live actively in the present and wait there. Now this is more than mindfulness. It's trusting God trusting that he's still at work, creating, redeeming, 
and revealing himself. It's us learning to regularly ask ourselves, what might God want to do right here, right now? The moment as we see it might be boring, frightening, confusing, painful, or just tediously routine. But what might God want to do in it anyway? Waiting is open-ended. Simeon and Anna had no idea how long they'd have to wait for the coming of Messiah, or that he would come as a helpless baby. Anna had waited 84 years. Yet open-ended waiting is hard for us, because we tend to want to wait for something very concrete, for something we wish to have. And in fact, much of our waiting is filled with wishes. I wish the weather would be better. I wish the pain would go. I wish I knew what to do about X, Y, or Z. So for this reason, a lot of our waiting is not open-ended. Instead, our waiting is more about our attempts to control the future. We want the future to go in a very specific direction. And if this doesn't happen, we're disappointed. To wait open-endedly is an enormously radical attitude towards life. So is to trust that something will happen to us that is far beyond our own imaginings, like Mary's acceptance of Gabriel's message. So too is giving up control over the future and letting God define our life, trusting that God moulds us according to his love and not according to our fears. And waiting is hope, not wishing. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon and Anna were not filled with wishes. They were filled with hope, filled with the promises that God had given them. And hope is trusting that something will be fulfilled. But fulfilled according to the promises, not just according to what we might like. So waiting requires us to practice hoping and maybe letting go of our wishes. So what do we gain by waiting? Waiting reminds us that we're not the center of the universe. It builds patience and transforms our character. It's so easy to get caught up in our own plans convinced that everything we do is absolutely crucially important. And that's part of what makes waiting frustrating. It's not part of our plan, we're having to wait on someone else. And yet so valuable. Because being forced to wait gives us the opportunity to remember that other people have plans and priorities as well that might be different from our own. We are not the focal point of the universe. Now that doesn't make our own plans unimportant, but it does help to put them in perspective, I think. And if we can be patient in waiting for the small things, if we can learn to do that, then how much will that help us to wait for the bigger things? Waiting also has a way of changing us, transforming us. Take Moses, for example. The story of Moses delivering the Israelites from Egypt is well known. But we often forget that Moses had to wait in the desert for 40 years before God came to him. 
Yet God used that time of waiting to transform his character. We know this because as a young man, he was brash and impatient. In his impetuousness and anger, he killed a man and hid the body. And when his sin was discovered, he ran for his life and was exiled to the desert. When he was given a second chance, he opted to do things God's way and in God's time. And in the end, the Israelites were delivered from slavery and Moses became a great leader. Waiting transformed the life of Moses and the Israelites. Waiting reminds us that God is in control and it builds intimacy and dependency on God. At the very least, waiting forces us to realise that we are not in control, no matter how much we might like to be. And that can give us a valuable opportunity to reflect on who God is. The reason we're able to read about the great men and women of the Bible is because they all had one thing in common. They were all people who learned their success in life was directly proportionate to the intimacy and dependency they had on God. For them, a relationship with God wasn't some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. For them, it was a matter of life and death. And waiting during the difficult times developed their relationship with God. They learned to trust in him and his promises. We have to hold on to the fact that God is just as interested in the journey as in the destination. If not, all these biblical accounts would have only included the good parts, not the bad and the ugly times of waiting. We may not always understand why we have to wait. In fact, we often don't. But the good news is that God never asks us to wait without him. He never asks us to wait without him. And waiting reminds us that life is a gift. Forced to sit at a red light or queue at the supermarket, we have a choice. We can grumble and get angry about the loss of our precious time. Or we can remember that those very few minutes themselves were a gift from God. A gift that we might have the opportunity to live for his glory. Waiting reminds us that the present matters. Sometimes waiting frustrates us because we're too focused on the future, on what might happen next. But what about now? Next is in God's hands. Now is what we have. Conversely, sometimes waiting frustrates us because we're not future-oriented enough. We have a finite amount of time. Why waste any of it waiting for things to happen, we think. But of course, our time isn't really finite because we're destined for eternity, eternity with God. And waiting could therefore remind us that this life is something, part of something much bigger. In the light of eternity, is a two-minute wait at the supermarket really that bad? How then should we wait? Simone Will, a Jewish writer, said, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. And John Ortberg writes, 
Waiting on the Lord is the continual daily decision to say, I will trust you and I will obey you. Even though the circumstances of my life are not turning out the way I want them to and may never turn out the way I would choose, I am betting everything on you. I have no plan B. Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Do we trust that God has good reasons for saying wait? Do we remember that things look different to him because he views things from an eternal perspective? What does it mean for you to wait and trust in the slow work of God today? As part of this, we may even need to come to an acceptance that our worth does not come from our doing, but from our being. From our being. Another countercultural idea. And who you become while you're waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. Who you become while you're waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. We also need to wait in community. Mary's visit made Elizabeth aware of what she was waiting for. The child leapt for joy in her. Mary affirmed Elizabeth's waiting. These two women created space for each other to wait. They affirmed for each other that something was happening that was worth waiting for. We too need to help each other, wait with each other and encourage one another to trust in God and hold on to his promises, especially perhaps during those times when we're struggling to hold on to them for ourselves. That's when we need to wait in community, wait with one another. Active, patient waiting means to be present fully to the moment. We need to live as though each moment is full, not empty. But more than that, we need to live each moment from that eternal perspective. How can we use our waiting time to prepare for Jesus' return? Jesus told a number of stories about the need to live in a state of readiness for the coming again of the Lord, such as that in Matthew 25, about the wise and foolish virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom. Five were foolish, because they weren't prepared sufficiently for the wait, and they ran out of light. Five were wise, because they took spare oil with them for their lights. And in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks about God arriving like a thief in the night. Jesus' stories combine a sense that we must at all times be prepared, but be prepared for surprises for which we can't prepare. So what are the main elements of this state of readiness that Jesus urges? Funnily enough, as in real life, practice makes perfect. One of the key elements in the real world for real-time events is practice. And the spiritual practice Jesus describes, that of being prepared, also requires us to practice, but perhaps not quite in the same way. Because the best practice for Jesus' return, the best preparation is try to try to live as if he already has returned in this realm of now and not yet in which we live, in which he's here but not yet here in glory.
and a key element of this practice, the spiritual practice to prepare in the present in order to be prepared for the future is conversely our attitude towards the past. Because our past anxieties, griefs, regrets and resentments can become what the poet William Blake called mind-forged manacles, that is shackles of our own making, that haunt us, that stop us from living courageously in the present so as to prepare for God's future. And these can be all kinds of shackles, something we wish, we said we'd, wish we'd said, something we wish we shouldn't hadn't said, something we wish we'd never done. They can also be assumptions that haunt us, that we're not really good enough, that we can't really do what we want to do, what life coaches might call self-limiting beliefs. And in order to open ourselves to the present, to waiting in the present, we have to find a way of dealing with our past. And Jesus taught us to do this by learning to live in the knowledge of God's inexhaustible forgiveness. His inexhaustible forgiveness. Though he doesn't say that's easy. That's why he included it in the Lord's Prayer to pray daily, daily for forgiveness so we can move on from our past. Having said all that about waiting and the need to prepare, there is also a danger sometimes that we can become ensnared in a state of mind that permanently tell us, tells us we're not ready. We're waiting until we've had more experience, have practiced something one more time, had a bit more training, had one more meeting, when in fact sometimes preparation can be a cover for the fact that we're afraid. We're afraid to act. And so we keep putting it off, telling ourselves we're laying the groundwork, working ourselves up to it, waiting for the right moment, which sometimes might never come if we keep on waiting. As Lisa said last week about the evangelism, sometimes we need to just do it. Because we'll probably never feel truly prepared for the reality of God's presence, God's renewed presence in our lives when he comes in glory. And in line with Jesus' teaching, our task is not to predict the future or try to assess it, but to live now as if it were then. To live now, rooted in the hope of a new future, the coming of the kingdom of God, that Jesus spent so much time talking about. Whether hungry or fed, the captives go free, and there will be no more tears. We need to live in the real world that surrounds us, while looking in hope for signs of a better one to come. And we need to wait on the Lord as we do this. As those wonderful words in Isaiah 40 say, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I think it's interesting that the word translated here as wait on is often translated as hope in. And that's because it means to wait in the sense of expecting. The phrase to wait on Yahweh means to wait for his help and to trust in him, to put our hope and confidence in him, as all those people in the Bible did. In this verse, it's referring to those who are suffering a long captivity in Babylon, 
and who had no prospect of deliverance apart from God. But this phrase is for all of us, all of us who feel weak, feeble, guilty, helpless, struggling. And in view of this, we put our trust in Yahweh. We put our trust in God. We put our trust in Jesus. The promise of assurance here is as relevant for us today as it was for God's people then. And it doesn't imply waiting passively, waiting with inactivity, but merely that we are putting our hope in God. And the best thing about this is that God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We're no longer waiting for the promised Messiah as the people of the Old Testament were. We've got Jesus here with us now and he is with us in all our waiting. Jesus is with us. Whether we're waiting with fear, dread or eager anticipation, he is with us. I thought it'd be good to remind you of a few key verses that came to my mind when I was looking at this, of God's promises to us. I'm sure you could all add your own. You could make a long list. But these are the ones that came to my mind that we can hold on to as we wait. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine, from Isaiah. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. From Psalm 62. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus' words in Matthew 28. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. John 15. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10. What are you waiting for this Advent? What are you waiting for? How can you start to change the way you wait? How can you start to change the way you wait, whether for the little things or the big things? How will you wait in an active, hopeful way in the present, not in the future and not in the past, but in the present? How will you wait? Which of God's promises are you going to hold on to in your waiting? Which are the ones that really ring strongly with you at the moment? I'd like to close by reading a few words which sum up for me some of the things that we've been reflecting on about waiting on God. Waiting on God is a way of life. Waiting on God is knowing God is God and we are not. Waiting on God is about surrendering our will to God day by day. Waiting on God is trusting God for pouring out grace also tomorrow. Waiting on God is seeking him with our whole hearts.
waiting on God is being changed into his likeness. Waiting on God is becoming who God created us to be. Amen.